But I thought this was uh, interesting. Yesterday I, I started, I showed you some of the, my evidence for, by the way, Pat, I was showing them this is Deseret, Mormon produced material, the original Book of Commandments, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, um, and Articles of Faith, that sort of thing, and the original 1830 Book of Mormon. So you can document all this. Yeah, the 1830. Mm -hmm. And and, and the, the changes are just tremendous. But I was showing them something that I found was interesting. Remember I mentioned that when Martin Harris wanted to look at the plates? He was he received the revelation from God that told him, stop asking. You know, I'm not going to show you. And it was really interesting. But then I was reading it last night a little bit further, and I ran across something even more interesting to me. That same opening... And this is in the 1830 Book of Commandments that later became, they, they just say it was revised and became the Book of the Doctrine and Covenants. So I looked. <clears throat> and uh, I have called him that he should enter into a covenant with me. That's Joseph Smith. Well, first of all, let me just read the beginning. It says, A revelation given to Joseph and Martin in Harmony, Pennsylvania, March 1829, when Martin desired the Lord to know whether Joseph Smith had in his possession the record of Nephi. He said he did, but Martin didn't believe him. So he, Joseph Smith very conveniently receives his revelation. I caused him, I, God, have caused him, Joseph, he should enter into a covenant with me that he should not show them except I command him which he wasn't commanding. And, and later on he says, don't ask anymore, just say you've seen them. I mean, I'm not making that up to the next page. But listen to this. And also he has no power over them except I grant it, and he, has no, and he has a gift to translate the book, and I have commanded him that he shall pretend to no other gift, for I will grant him no other gift. I read that. I was just kind of reading through there just, I thought, I bet that did not make the 1830 version, or 1835 version. So I went over it. It limited him tremendously, which at the beginning was fine. In 1829, that was fine. But by 1835, he was doing a whole lot more. So I went, sure enough, I found the section in the 1835 version. And you have a gift to translate the plates. And this is the first gift I have bestowed to you. Uh, yeah, and this is the first gift I have bestowed upon you, and I have commanded you shall pretend no other gift until my purpose is fulfilled in this, for I will grant unto you no other gift until it is finished. That's completely different meaning. But the, and, and see, they published this stuff. That's why I say Mark, uh, Mormonism has tremendous, tremendous trouble. All right. We looked at um, the idea that uh, the Mormons have about God. We looked at the idea that they believe that there are many, many gods, and we looked at the number, and it's no small number. We used the quote about the planet, planets and their particles. and <clears throat> We looked at the fact that they believe that God has a body of flesh and blood, the same as we do, same proportions occupied space just like we do. They do not believe that he is omnipresent. We didn't go into that. Today, we're going to look at the idea, very briefly first here, that God was once a man and that he progressed to Godhood. And then we're also going to look at the uh, idea that God created the earth 
uh, and the universe, or God created the earth in this little section of the universe, I should say, that he organized them, merely organized them from uh, pre-existing matter. In fact, some Mormon doctrines state that God and the, the universe, and matter in the universe, rather, are co-eternal. That God does not transcend the universe. He is in the universe as a physical entity, a spiritual entity too, of course, but he is in the universe and he is co-eternal. He did, matter was not dependent upon him. We'll look at that uh, pretty briefly. And then, uh, if we are wise with our time, we should be able to get into the apostasy. It's very important uh, when you're discussing the Mormon, with Mormons where the apostasy of the church comes in and, and what their view of it is. Okay. Well, first of all, we got to have the quote there. It is the first principle, and this is Joseph Smith, it is the first principle of the gospel. By the way, I like the, the, not, the superlative type language that they use in so many places. You know, this is the fundamental thing. Oh, this is the fundamental thing. Or this is the first principle of the gospel. And here's another thing that's completely different. This is the first principle. They're just sloppy with that sort of thing. But anyway, it is the first principle of the gospel to know for certainty the character of God and to know that we may converse with him as a man, uh, with him as one man converses with another. And that he was once a man like us, yea, that God himself, the Father of us all, dwelt on an earth, the same as Jesus Christ himself did. Of course, this is in uh, the teachings of Joseph Smith. <clears throat> well, what does the Bible have to say about it? First of all, it is interesting. I could find no Bible passage. Let me get my Bible. I could find no Bible passage that they use to teach this. And while I'm walking back up to the front here, the, there is a very handy resource online um, that the Mormons put out. And it is done by, the, uh, by Brigham Young University, and it is the Encyclopedia of Mormonism. And just do a Google search on Encyclopedia of Mormonism, you're going to see a site come up to uh, Brigham Young University, and it, you can search it. So I, I searched today, for example, Sons of Perdition, so I got some more information for Bob on that subject. And uh, he needs to know just exactly what's in his future and why. That's right. So that is a really good resource if you're studying a particular subject, if you're in active discussions and you just want some clarification on what they believe. Uh, they view it as authoritative. It has been edited and looked at by the prophets, so pretty authoritative. <clears throat> So at any rate, well, what does the Bible have to say about this? Well, first of all, Hosea chapter uh, 9 here, 11 rather, verse 9. Do you mind if I move this one step over there? Hosea uh, 11, 9. What, what does the Bible say about God? Well, contrary to what we were looking at earlier, uh, it states that God is not a man. Not the primary point here. Okay, eleven nine. I will not execute fierceness, the fierceness of my anger. I will not destroy again destroy Ephraim or Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in our in your midst, and I will not come with terror. Okay, whatever this is saying, it's saying at this point in time when this was recorded, God was at least at that point in time not a man. Okay. 
Now look at, uh, oops, that was previous, Malachi 3, verse 6. He is, at that point in time, that little snapshot of time, he is not a man in the flesh or otherwise. Okay. Read that for us if you would, Mr. Valeu. Verse 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Okay, we're not taking a great deal of time here to bring out the context, but we can see that this states pretty clearly, I do not change. So at that point back there in Hosea, he's not a man. Here, it says he doesn't change. Well, if he'd ever been a man, he'd have to still be a man at that point in time. Now look at verse uh, 9, I'm sorry, uh, Psalm chapter 90, verse 2. And when you use these in this progression, I don't see any conclusion that you can uh, that you can draw other than that God has never been a man. He is not changing. He's never going to be anything other than what he has always been. All right, uh, Dan, if you want to read Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you have found the earth and the world, Okay, so this speaks to the whole thing. Really, this verse alone is enough because it states that no matter how far back you go or how far forward you go, you're God. We know that he's not a man. He doesn't change. We looked at Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10 yesterday. Before, before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. He's it. Bible, the Bible's very clear on this. I mean, really, when you look, if you just kind of think about the context of the whole Old Testament, what was the problem that Israel kept falling into? Idolatry. And so, so much of the Old Testament refutes this idea that there is anyone with any authority anywhere and that God has ever been anything other than what he is. And these are just a sampling of that. So Mormonism has to go somewhere other than scriptures here. Now, they would contend, of course, that this is something in which the Bible was polluted, that a plain, in their word, a plain and precious truth was taken from the scriptures. We're going to look at that hopefully just briefly tonight, that that doesn't stand either. All right, let's get into a, a little bit maybe trickier subject. Uh, a lot of their scholars and, and quite frankly a lot of denominational scholars, pretty good scholars, have devoted a lot of attention to this in the last 10 years. <clears throat> And that is that uh, this idea that God uh, is co-eternal with matter and that he didn't create that matter, but rather that he only organized it. In this first quote from their apostle John Woodstow, God, the supreme power, cannot conceivably originate matter. Well, we can conceive that he could do that. Uh, He can only organize matter. Neither can he destroy matter. He can only disorganize it. The doctrine that God made the earth or man from nothing becomes, therefore, an absurdity. Okay? Pretty, pretty, pretty special. This is an apostle. This is a Mormon apostle, John Woodstow, in uh, Rational Theology. And now this particular quote coming up next, again, is a quote from the King Follett Discourse, it's called, or, or, or discussion. It was actually done at a funeral that I mentioned yesterday when this fellow was killed. He just went into this whole diatribe on, on where God came from. Uh, you ask the learned doctors why they say the world was made out of nothing, 
and they will answer. Doesn't the Bible say he created the world? They infer from the word create that it must have been out of nothing. Now the word create came from the word bara. Now I've corrected his spelling. He actually spells it B-A-U-R-A-U. Um, which does not mean to create out of nothing. It means to, cre- to organize the world out of chaos, chaotic matter, which is element, in, in which all dwells all glory. Element had an existence from the time he, God had. Well, that's co-eternal right there. That's exactly what that's saying. Matter and God are both co-eternal. The pure principles of element which can never be destroyed, they may be organized, uh, organized and reorganized, but not destroyed. They had no beginning and can have no end. So matter is co-eternal. God simply reorganized it, or organized it. All right, so is this assertion that that the word bara does not mean create from nothing? I mean, that's the word that's found in in, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Verse 1, rather. And it is true that the word does not necessarily uh, demand creation from nothing. So he really wasn't off the mark in that. Uh, if it were used in different contexts where materials are mentioned, it would probably mean to organize those materials into something. But it does not preclude the idea that God created from nothing. And what we're going to look at is to show that not only does Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2 uh, strongly infer that God did indeed create the world and the universe from nothing all at one time, the entire universe, not just our little section. But, <clears throat> well, I guess that would be about it. He created the world, the universe, from nothing <laughs> um, and, and its entirety. All right, I've already mentioned verse 1. Let's flip over there and look briefly at this. The, uh, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. We've already stated that the word created there does not demand that it, that it was from nothing. But, and also, if you look at verse 2, you might draw the conclusion, here's the earth. It is disorganized, just like he said. It is without form and void. And what does he do? He immediately begins to act upon it in the days of creation, to do the things that organize. So, Wow, that sure looks like that's a, a pretty strong case for him, for them. Well, the first thing I would point is, in Genesis chapter 1, there's a chronology here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's nothing prerequisite mentioned at all. And in view, what is in view here is not some, some ambiguous beginning. Uh, it is the beginning. It is the absolute beginning. Uh, there's nothing mentioned before it. Okay, so from that, all we can say is it's unusual usage for the word bara to be used in this way in, in reference to a beginning without any other materials or any prerequisites of any kind mentioned. It seems to be referring to an absolute beginning. Now, this is not the only passage we need. If it were the only passage, there might be some ambiguity that we could draw from this. Uh, even though it does seem very clearly to imply an absolute beginning of all that is. Other passages make it more clear. Let's look over to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3. And what we're going to see, we want to notice two things. 
uh, really at least two things. That God, there's no uh, requisite uh, materials. There's nothing uh, that he is re- required to have to, to act on to do this. The extent of what is in view is everything. And that would have to mean all matter if you look at the language. Verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen are not made of things which are visible. Well, the, uh, the physical universe, things in the physical universe, most of them have a tendency to be physically observable. They tend to be visible. Well, this says that the things which are seen, that physical universe, are made things which were not visible. That implies, at least, to some extent, that they were not matter in, in any form that we can understand them right now, at least, because they were made uh, from things that were not visible. All right. Romans chapter 4. <clears throat> now, I'm going to point out right here, too, that one thing you won't see that is very strongly missing is any passage that they could refer to that would imply that God did use materials. Every passage that we're going to look at and any you could find will imply that God acted with nothing as the basis for what he was doing. All right, Romans 4.17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of him who believes, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now, in the context here, it's talking about the children of Abraham. They didn't exist when God said this to him. I've made you the father of many nations. But the point that he's using is a general point. He calls, to, he calls those things which do not exist. This is a general principle about God. God has the ability to call things that do not exist into being. So this passage shows that God clearly, contrary to the assertion, God cannot originate matter. This passage says he can. So if God did organize matter, he certainly has the ability to to call things into existence, things that are not seen as though they did exist and are seen. And that's exactly what Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2 implies. implies. All right, Nehemiah 6 here. Now, I didn't actually arrange these in any any particular order. Uh, Some of these are going to speak mostly to the extent of God's creative activity. And what, what I would infer from that is that if God is stated as having created all things, and all things without any exception are dependent upon him, then that disproves what they state. Uh, yeah, 9-6. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. So here, this is speaking to the extent of God's creative work. Uh, you've got the heaven, the sky. You've got the heaven of heavens. That would be uh, the starry host, the celestial bodies. Uh, and he goes on to say the hosts, uh, with all their hosts, the earth and everything in it, on it the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. Okay? So this is one of the many passages that speak, again, to the extent of God. It doesn't, it doesn't give room to this idea that God 
was dependent on something somewhere else. It says he brought all these things into existence. Romans 11, verse 36. And uh, Pat, if you would read that one for, for us, please, sir. 11, 36. For up to Okay. And this is again one of the passages that speaks to the extent of all that is being attributable to God. There's no exceptions mentioned here. All things are dependent on God. Not just their organization, but their very being. See, again, the silence of the scriptures here to describe it in the way that they want it described is deafening in that sense. It's, it's not talking about these things were organized. It says they, they're dependent, dependent upon God to bring them into existence. So, again, it's not as if Genesis 1, 1, 1, 2 are all we mean. Okay? 1 Corinthians 8, 6, this is a passage we looked at last night. Um, Dennis, if you want to read that one for us, that would be good. Yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Okay, another passage again stating that God is the beginning, the originator, the one upon whom all things is dependent. Doesn't leave room for their idea. Okay, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9. And I'll start with eight. To, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus. Or through Jesus Christ, I'm sorry. Again, extent is in view here. And, it's, and there's no question that all things are in view. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. <clears throat> For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And this even goes on beyond the physical realm into spiritual and authoritative realms. So nothing can be claimed to be outside of the realm of what is dependent upon God. And then in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. <clears throat> now, I, I will tell you right now, I culled a number of scriptures out of this. The Bible is just very clear on this subject, that, that God did indeed create all things from nothing, and they are all dependent upon him. This passage here speaks to the absolute fact that God is not co-eternal with matter, but rather he is the, the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Uh, what you see right in the book, send it to the seven churches and so forth. But again, it speaks, and there are several passages that you could probably think of that speak to the fact that God is absolute in his beginning and not co-eternal with matter. All right, Isaiah 44. We're almost done with this list. <clears throat> Verse 24. Uh, Dan, if you want to catch that one for us, that would be good. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, and, and he who formed you from the womb, I the Lord who makes all things, and stretches up the heavens all along, 
Okay, and not, not dependent on anyone else to do it. And again, nothing is left out of the list. And then uh, I think finally here, Psalm 33, or verses 6 and 9. And Pat, if you will read that one for us. Psalm 33, verse 6 and verse 9. Uh-huh. By the word of the Lord, and the heavens made, and all the hosts of him, by the breath of his mouth. And verse 9, for he spake and it was done, and he commanded and it stood past. That's pretty conclusive, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, that just pretty well says it again, like the, the, one of the earlier verses uh, in Nehemiah there. Uh, the host, everything's being described. The waters, the sea, everything that's in the sea, everything is in view. There's no, there, there's no room for the Mormon idea here. All right. Uh, I'm sure a, a good apologist could have done better with that, but uh, that's what we got. We need to move on to the apostasy, because I can see right now, I don't think we're going to get through everything. I had hoped we would. Any questions, thought, or any comments about that? During the days that you were coming out of this, was there anybody standing up to them, like, uh, really standing up to them and saying, like, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> what planet? You all, all of you came from Colorado. And Jesus had heard one. I mean, they went ahead and all of these things and had their fallen. They weren't coming up with much resistance to this. Unfortunately, there was resistance, some of which was misguided. Uh, it was heavy-handed resistance in the form of physical. But there were able men who resisted this stuff valiantly, and it would have taken off even more had that not been done. Um, Alexander Campbell refuted this pretty strongly uh, in, in, in his own context. Um, I won't say Barton Stone did as well, but probably by the time you got into the late, well, one thing that really... If Mormonism had, if the Mormons had tried to stay in the East, Upper Midwest, there's a pretty good chance that they would not have progressed as they did. But going, he was shot. Right. Oh yeah, I mean that was some of that misguided. I mean, really, I think, and, and I. And it, well, the men, the men. Well, if you read the history. There were all sorts of reasons. There were some over the money. The, the men, the 200 or so men that mobbed the Carthage jail on the 27th of June, 1844, they were against them for, like you say, the money. They were in the area. They were consuming resources. They were threatening. Um, they opposed them spiritually, too, some of those men, or at least people in the area did strongly oppose the doctrine. And it, uh, but things that Mormons said drew them into conflict. They, they said, we're going to establish the kingdom and Christ is going to return here and they were going to consolidate all the land under the control of the Mormons. And that's the people in life that. But, um, so, but to your point, Joseph Smith was shot and killed in, the, in that context. They were driven out of Missouri. Uh, once they were driven out of uh, upper, upstate New York. Um, but focusing more on the spiritual, you know, debate, that, that really kicked into high gear in the late, 18, like 1870, 1880, 1890, when people became more aware that they were practicing polygamy out in Utah. Of course, the government came down. There was something in, referred to as the Utah War, where the government dispatched troops out there. The Mormons had to 
um, do stalling tactics to keep them from overrunning them. Um, they had to sign the manifesto saying they were going to denounce polygamy in order to be brought into the union. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of material written at that time. David Whitmer uh, wrote an address to all believers in Christ, in which, and I've got a copy in, in 18, about 1876, I think it was, in which he strongly denounced them for what they did. And, of course, he was one of the three original signers of the Book of Mormon. Um, in fact, Mark Harris and Sidney, all of those people stood against what Brigham Young was then doing. So without going too far down that road, yeah, there were people who did and, and have, in the, beginning in the 50s and 60s, you know, with Fawn Brody, with Gerald and Sandra Tanner, um, and, and lots and lots of others uh, who left the Mormon, who were of strong Mormon lineage, who didn't believe it anymore, uh, a lot of material got published. But as I mentioned in the first discussion, probably the last 10 years have seen the most proliferation of, of doctrine, or rather of uh, material, that refutes what the Mormons teach. And I believe, as a result of that, that that peak occurred in the late 90s, and they are a, a, a somewhat in, in uh, decline. All right, their view uh, on the apostasy. Mormons teach that the apostasy immediately followed the death of the apostles. It was complete. And it not only resulted in the corruption of the Bible, but the complete eradication of the true church. This occurred very, very quickly, uh, happened immediately after the, the apostles died, uh, and went through the, the church, the congregation, so quickly, so that uh, to the point that by the end of the third century, and that's being very generous, uh, I mentioned there's a quote that we're about to see that says as much, but there are others who say that it was virtually complete by the end of the, of the second century, so within a hundred years of the apostles. The Bible was then purposefully changed to take out these things that uh, were, you know, that, that we're talking about, God, the church, salvation. Uh, and of course, all of this required what happened. It required Joseph Smith to come back, or to come, and for God through Jesus Christ and the angel Moroni to restore the fullness of the gospel in these latter days. That's where the name came from, these latter days. We're going to see some hints as to where they got that idea of the latter days. So we're going to look at the effect on the church, the effect on the Bible, and then there's some pretty glaring inconsistencies that don't take a microscope to find with this whole idea of the apostasy. All right. Get past this because we're really all right. With the passing of the apostles and the loss of the priesthood, loss of the priesthood keys, corrupt doctrines were introduced into the church by the second and third centuries. Widespread changes had been made in the pure doctrines in order to give by the Savior the church that Jesus Christ or Jesus had established and sanctioned was no longer on this earth. And okay, that's from the prophet. Then with this warning, the, these chosen servants of the Lord, these authorities of the early day church, went forth as commanded by the Lord, okay? And they tasted the, of the opposition in all things. There was opposition within the church. There was opposition out of the church. You can, you can hear the Bible verses that they're thinking about when, they, when they're speaking this. I, I see Matthew 20, 20, uh, 28, 20 and, and uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians. 
the uh, spirit of apostasy spread, and finally apostasy overcame the church. The leaders of the church were destroyed, taken out of the ministry. The people were left in darkness, and gross darkness covered their minds, and we had a complete apostasy from the truth. Okay? So not only was it fast, it was complete. The church no longer existed on the earth. That's why I wasn't really, I wasn't being cute the other night when I said when Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery were baptized, they were the first Christians on the earth in about 1,700 years, in, in their view. All right, so let's look at Deuteronomy chapter. This is Now, these are some of their proof texts here. Now, this one is a pretty flimsy one, not too hard to shoot down. Um, this is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 28. Because it just, just, doesn't, uh, just doesn't fit. All right, Pat, if you would read that for us, sir. Deuteronomy 4, 28. And there you shall serve God, the work of his hands, Okay. Now, if you don't have a good understanding of the whole history of the Old Testament, this might be a reasonably good passage to go to. What all they're trying to do is show that it was foretold that the apostasy would occur even in the Old Testament and that it would require the restitution of all things, that is, the restoration gospel. So, we automatically, when we read this verse, we know what it's talking about. But here's what they key on. They look at this, uh, this expression, uh, among other things. There's two, two, little, two or three little subtle things, but they will, even, they will use this, I should say, to, to say that, look, the, the gods of these denominations today, these apostate churches, they do not, they're, not, they're not in physical bodies. So therefore they do not see, they do not hear, they do not smell, they do not eat. That's talking about our God. You know, we... Our God doesn't do those things physically because he's a spirit. And so this is evidence of the fact that God wouldn't do that, or that these gods are, uh, that we believe in are prophesied here in the Old Testament. Of course, they are directing our gaze far afield. They're, they're looking to now, to these, when really it's all summed up there in the Old Testament. This is what the Israelites were warned. That's who he's talking to. They were warned. Did it happen? Absolutely. Is it clear that that's what the view? Surely it is, because uh, this is talking about gods made with, in the verse, men's hands, wood, and stone. Now, if you bring that up, there's some chance that they, or, or depending on who says it, and what, how, they, how strong they think this verse is and what point, they may take it from the angle of the graven images of the Catholic Church and to a lesser extent the Protestant denominations with crucifixes and things in their statues and all that, that those things are fulfillment of this. They're, they're, but that doesn't stand either because clearly it's talking about the, the, uh, the Jews and their idolatry, which ultimately uh, brought them down. <clears throat> all right. Now let's get into this idea of, this is a little bit uh, better proof text here for them. Uh, Acts chapter 20 and verse 30. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Okay? Hey, that, you know, this is Paul speaking to those Ephesian elders. This is during the time of the apostles. And what is Paul saying? He's saying there is going to be an apostasy. Wow. So, does that prove that they're right? Uh, that, that there is going to be an apostasy and that it's going to equal the complete eradication of the church? 
that it's going to happen fast, all of those things? Well, let's notice a few things. First of all, and we will, all of us will readily admit that an apostasy is in view here. Uh, it says so, and there are other passages that we'll look at that will say the same. These elders, for one thing, were forewarned. They were forewarned to be ready to confront this problem. Look over, if you would, with me to Second uh, Peter chapter 3. Now, my point in this is, why would the Spirit guide Paul to tell these men this? Why would the Spirit guide Peter to tell these men this if it was a futile effort in the first place and the Spirit would have known that? If the church was about to just go pell-mell right off a cliff and disappear from the face of the earth, what was the purpose of all these warnings? Well, Second Peter makes it pretty clear what the purpose of these warnings are. Because if you, if you think about the context of Second Peter, it is very much warning about false teachers, right? Therefore, beloved, here at the end of the book, since you know this beforehand, right, same situation as with those Ephesian elders, beware lest you fall from your own, from your own steadfastness being led away by the error of the wicked. But what does he want them to do? But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. So this does not look like a lost cause. This looks like you're being warned. <clears throat> excuse me, warned. Therefore, uh, be prepared and don't be stagnant in your faith. Grow. Secondly, these false teachers, are, as mentioned in the passage, you know what, I don't even have a two there, do I? <laughs> I must have taken another point out. Uh, yeah, they're there. Why would the, okay, that was that second point. They were forewarned. Why would they be forewarned uh, if that was a doomed cause? And in the passage itself, there's an indication that this would not be complete because, look, uh, the, these perverse teachers would be drawing away disciples after themselves. That implies if you're going to draw something away, something will remain. Uh, at least... Small inference, at least, that that's the case. Now, for some probably, in my opinion, stronger evidence, let's look at the book of Ephesians. Now, if, if this Ephesian church, Paul is basically pronouncing to them that they are doomed to failure, ultimately, they'll have a, a small period uh, of, of prosperity spiritually, but that virtually immediately they're going to go away. Let's look at Ephesians chapter and verse 6. This was written about five years, I'm sorry, about eight years after this. <clears throat> Same thing here as we just saw in 2 Peter. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of all these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So Paul, eight years later, writing to them, is still telling them, let no one deceive you. Now this is not the only place in this path, in this book, that does that, where he's warning them and telling them to stand fast. Why would he tell them to let no one deceive them if, if they were going to be deceived? If, if it was perpetual. Uh, impossible to avoid. The reason I kicked out the word perpetual there, I was thinking about what Paul's, I didn't include this in my arguments, but what Paul told uh, Timothy, teach faithful brethren that they will teach other faithful commit these things into their hands that they will teach. and teach. It's a propagation of the truth there. Um, all right, now look back over in uh, chapter 3. I'm in Ephesians. I apologize. 
Yeah, we're going to get to that passage too here in a minute. Um, Alright, so here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse uh, 20 and 21 in particular. Now, to him who is able to, to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Jesus, Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Now, this is written to who? Christians in particular congregation at Ephesus. So, what is he saying to them? If he's saying to them that to Jesus Christ there's going to be glory given. Just in your generation, but not much longer thereafter? No. Throughout all generations, forever and ever. This does not sound like a doomed church. This church is going to continue. Yeah. So, now we know Galatians chapter 1 verse 8 is a passage we would use to against the Mormons. For several reasons, it fits. Uh, it has a lot to say about it. But they may take you here before you take them there. Because they got, they may, and I make this point here, maybe in an effort to beat you to the punch, uh, to use the path, take that high ground away from you. Uh, I'm sure they've been browbeaten with this passage many times, for good reason. Uh, verses, uh, verse 8 rather. But even if we are an angel, read Moroni, angel Moroni, coming to Joseph, right? Even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. Well, Bell's used this to say that, uh, of course, there were going to be, and, and this Galatians were already suffering from some of this, that uh, this ultimately resulted in another gospel. There would be another gospel that would be perverted. Read if you're a Mormon, you read that, the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was that other gospel, uh, the deification of, or the sanctification or what have you of, of these saints, uh, worship of Mary, all these things that are mentioned. Um, it's a pretty weak argument, but again, it may be just to get the high ground and get this passage out of the way. <clears throat> but of course, the passage uh, does teach that there uh, was the potential, at least, of other Gospels. The book goes on to describe just such a Gospel. Uh, it was the Gospel of the Judaizing teachers who came in and were trying to make the proselytes, the Gentiles, subject to circumcision and other Jewish ordinances before they could become Christians. That's just such a Gospel that did come. So we don't have to look to the Catholic Church. It was happening among the, the Galatians. At the very beginning, you, oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you to believe these things? Um, also, what are some other uh, New Testament, or some uh, in the New Testament, other Gospels that were dealt with? Well, Gnosticism, John had to deal with that uh, in the book of Revelation, Nicolaitan doctrines mentioned, uh, doctrine of Balaam. So, you don't have to look to the Catholic Church. You don't have to see a complete apostasy for these scriptures to mean something. They mean something in their in their context. They didn't do a real good job of that, but I think you see the point. Yeah. All right. Here's the one you were looking at, I believe. Second Thessalonians chapter two and verse three. 
I think it's good, you know, if you're going to study with them, to understand, to see things from their perspective. When they see something, they see the Catholic Church. They, it may not have really occurred to them if they hadn't run across somebody who knows something about the Bible, that it would be something else. And, and they're not going to be strong Bible students anyway. They've got so much to read anyhow. They don't have to keep up with it all. All right. Here the expression uh, in chapter 2, verse 3, the falling away is uh, meant to, to, hey, there's going to be a specific falling away here. Now, um, let no one deceive you, verse 3, um, by any means for that day, now kind of put a little placeholder in the words that day, will not come unless the falling away comes first, the man of sin. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Starting to hear some Mormon terminology here. Uh, they take and build all kinds of things on that who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Okay. So what they are saying with this passage is that day is the day when the prophet Joseph Smith would have the fullness of the gospel restored to him in the form of the Book of Mormon and later on the revelations that came. No, uh Oh they they don't have any other proof from this context, from this text here. They're they're just saying what else what else? they're basically put the question to you for let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, the day that Joseph Smith comes, okay. it won't come until the falling away. So you see how that gets... Well, it is talking about the second coming, but they put it to be when the gospel is restored to the earth through Joseph Smith. And why wouldn't they? But fits very neatly with their, their thought, you know, history here. You have the church on the earth, there would be a falling away, and then the gospel would be restored. And, and he would be done through Joseph Smith in that day. Um, <clears throat> uh, the passage, again, does foretell, foretell an apostasy. It foretells and causes the, uh, the apostasy. But the extent, again, which apostasy is in view, not particularly clear. There's some, some hints given here. It would include, I think, the apostasy that the Catholic Church participated in predated, to some extent, the Catholic Church. Uh, but other passages help us to understand the degree to which this falling away would occur. Again, Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, uh, I would appeal to to show that this apostasy was never intended to be a complete falling away of the Church. Now, I'm not certain we should read the entire passage here, but... Uh, it, it crescendos down, and in verse 9, it, it's talking about, well, let's read verses uh, 4 through 9 at least. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah. Now, points going to be made from this, I think, is very critical. But save Noah, one of the eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of the, on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. 
and delivered, uh, rather, delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy, con- filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then God, or rather, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Right here in the book of Second Peter, talking about these, these wicked uh, deceivers, verse 3, by covetousness they will just exploit you, they will deceive you. These very people who are doing this, who are leading the people into apostasy, uh, God knows how to deliver you from them. Just like he delivered Noah, righteous Noah was surrounded by wicked people. Was he saved? Absolutely. Lot, was he surrounded by wicked people? Absolutely. He was saved. Parable of the wheat and the tares. The righteous and the unrighteous will dwell together. This gives us a view of the apostasy that we need. Was it an eradication of the church? Absolutely not. It was a church that was in the midst of turmoil and tribulation. It was in the midst of deceivers from within and from without. But it was a church, nonetheless, that existed and thrived uh, spiritually at that time. apologize for the speed with which we're having to go through this. Um, not that I would do any better if I had an hour with that one passage, so I'd just start repeating. First Timothy 4, 1 and 2, again, one of the passages that legitimately foretells the, uh, of the apostasy. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And it goes on to describe some things that were done and a few which continue on till today. Um, the Spirit says that this would happen. Again, we don't in any way deny that that happened, but this passage does not tell us the extent. That's the thing that's missing in these passages. Yes, we admit an apostasy occurred, but we would, based on what we just saw in Second Peter, we would deny that it was complete. In fact, it was told that it would not be complete. And if you look over here, Matthew, probably one of the, in my mind, the stronger passage to absolutely crush this idea that the apostasy would result in the eradication of the church is the words of Jesus here at the Great Commission. Verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is not talking about a church that is doomed. He's not talking about a church that's going to go away even for 1,500 years or 1,600 years. He's talking about the fact that he would be with them in this effort to, to, to convert the world to teach forever, uh, until the end of the age at least, right? All right, so it just doesn't support their idea. Uh, Apostasy's effect on the Bible. Uh, We had a little bit of time. I'd read to you a a little bit more lengthy. This is a really interesting passage where Joseph Smith had it in his mind, this idea of the apostasy. Now, we mentioned the historical context was the Catholic Church getting a pretty good bit of heat in that part of the country at that time. Of course it was. So this was something that was on the minds of a lot of people. Uh, that the Catholic Church and really former uh, Protestant denominations had not restored the fullness of the gospel. 
is what Campbell and others, faithful, good people, were, were teaching. So at any rate, he's got in this, this section in the book of First uh, Nephi, where he goes on and describes in detail the apostasy, the wickedness of the, of the abominable church, which was code language for the Catholic church. There's very little secret. In fact, there's writings that identify it explicitly as such. <clears throat> Wherefore thou seest that after the book has gone forth, this is the Bible, through the hands of the great and abominable church, that there are many plain and precious things taken away from the book. And the point to make in all of this the Mormons will look to me and say, I believe the Bible to be the Word of God insofar as it's correctly translated. Article 8 of the Articles of Faith. They don't believe that. They, don't, they believe that it was not transmitted properly and that by the time that corrupted, those, the corrupted Bible got to modern times, that it is also not translated properly. Modern Mormon scholars have dropped the latter of those two but they still maintain the first, which is that it was corrupted in transmission. So, through from the early church, from the time that the apostles were on the earth uh, until today, yeah, that from transmitted from that time until now, that it passed through the hands of the Catholic Church and would, was therefore gutted. Now, did that potential exist? It really did. It's kind of amazing. Well, it's not amazing. And they didn't gut it. There would be a lot of things that they would have taken out, but that they didn't. And there's good reason why, and, and we'll make this point here in a minute, that even if they had taken it upon themselves to do that, and that it wouldn't have worked. Okay, here's another quote. Add to all this imperfection, obviously he's talking about something we're just stepping in the middle of here. Uh, all, add all this imperfection to the uncertainty of translation, and who in his right mind could for one moment suppose the Bible in its present form to be a perfect guide? Who knows that even one verse of the whole Bible has escaped pollution so as to convey the same sense now that it did in the original? And that's way back in Orson Pratt's day, at the beginning of the Mormon church. So they're casting, well, I mean, if you're, you've got your own book, which Joseph Smith says, and you can read it get the full word, that the Book of Mormon is the most correct of any book in existence, even though it's been changed 3,900 and some odd times. And I can show you, I can show you some of them. But uh, you want to put the Bible into some question if you're raising up your book as being superior to it. So, of course, that's something they're going to do. We're not going to go into a great uh, detail on this, but a few points are sufficient. Uh, many manuscripts that we have today predate the Catholic Church uh, by hundreds of years. Uh, when I was, when we were living in England, we would, we, where we worshipped with just a small group of Christians was about 300 yards from the British Museum. And after services, some Sundays, several times, we would walk down there just so I could see the Codex Sinaiticus. I just, I know, well, I didn't worship it, okay, it's just a thing. But it is, in my mind, an evidence that God protected his word. There it is, complete, the New Testament, all together, and it predates the Catholic Church. And it's just a beautiful, and it's beautiful, it's just physically pretty to see. Uh, but there, and then you've got the Sinaiticus, you've got the Vaticanus, you've got... You know, you've got other Alexandrists, not quite as good of a document as this Codex Sinaiticus, but, but these documents were, that Catholic Church didn't know they existed evidently. So, 
the idea, and these and these were found, by the way, after this past after 1830. So uh, the idea, nobody would would claim that the Catholic Church corrupted those documents. Couldn't have. They didn't exist when they were were, were made. Uh, and there's no indication of erased marks on them. Many writings of the early Christian. Now, this is a really, when I first became a Christian, coming out of Mormonism and, and jettisoning the Book of Mormon, uh, when I first began to read Lightfoot's book on how we got the Bible, I have to admit, it shook me up a little bit because I just had this, you know, this being used to this revelation and direct and all that. This argument wasn't that strong to me, but the more I've studied it, uh, not tremendously, it's a, it is an incredible argument against Mormon's idea here especially, but it's also a strong faith-building thing for us. If you take the writings of the church fathers, who just discussing things, they were quoting from the, the scriptures they had handy. You can almost put the entire New Testament together just from their quotes, and their quotes is cross-reference. You know, in other words, if you corrupted a, a manuscript here, and we have 4,000 plus unsealed and, and cursives more, uh, it just doesn't fit. You couldn't corrupt all those writers. You couldn't, and they're very, very early on. We're talking first, second century writings here, um, third century. Now, it's interesting, too, that the things that these men are writing about, they are writing to refute, in many cases, or at least discuss, some of these errors that came in in the apostasy. They're talking about it, pro or con, and they're quoting scriptures. Now, if the purity of the gospel is the Mormon church as it exists today, with all of these things, we've been talking about God, and, and, and it's true that the Catholic church took all of that out of the Bible, very conveniently, why do these men mention no such arguments, no such things? In the, they may mention Gnosticism, but they don't mention anything that even closely resembles Mormonism. So it, it just don't fly. If that was the truth, it would at least make it into those documents, and then it doesn't. <clears throat> okay. Uh, nothing less than the complete apostasy of the Christian religion would warrant the establishment of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Pretty good statement. Therefore, in order that there might be a restitution of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began, and we're going to look at Acts 3.21, it was necessary that these two priesthoods be restored again uh, uh, to men upon this earth. All right. So let's look here at Acts 3. And that he might send Jesus. Well, let's look back up to uh, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the fullness of times of restoration uh, until the restoration, I'm so sorry, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. When they see this, they see restoration, meaning the restoration movement, and in particular, the Mormon portion of the restoration movement, which is the only true portion, the only one they will really even acknowledge these days. So the question on the table is, is what Jesus, or is what Peter here is talking about, could that in any way be a, a, a pointing forward to a time when Joseph Smith would receive whatever ordinances, whatever 
scriptures, whatever revelation. Well, I'm going to cut to the chase. There's several things we could say about that. Verse 24 pretty well kills it. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. So the time of restoration of all things, verse 25 and 26, clearly a a reference of man being able through Jesus Christ to be reconciled to God, to have his relationship restored to God through Jesus. That's what's in view. But verse 24 really kills it because it says, these days. It's not talking about 1830. It's talking about what was happening at that point in time. Okay. So the restitution of restoration was not talking about Right. And the thing that Peter was teaching these people was that Jesus Christ, whom they had crucified, was the Lord. He was the Savior. Not only is he saying, asserting that, but he's saying that the prophets have always said that this was what was going to happen. And this is what is now being fulfilled. So it can't refer to, it precludes the possibility that it refers to some other later time. The uh, Revelation chapter 14, and I guess we will probably quit. Uh, i got just a couple of little things, if you can stand it, that are pretty easy to digest and I probably won't slaughter too bad. Uh, Revelation 14, 6. Here, uh, again, this is a passage that they take, a very cryptic passage. Uh, I mean, you know, it's in the book of Revelation. They would take to be a reference to the angel Moroni appearing to Joseph Smith in 1823. All right. And the wording is, then I saw another angel. Okay. This is, if you're a Mormon, that is Moroni flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Okay? And he has a message. That's a very good message. Well, what they're, when they see the apostasy having occurred, the church is no longer on the earth, if the Bible is corrupted, there is no guidance, the people live in darkness, God sends an angel. Who have, What does he have? He's got the fullness of the gospel. He's got the everlasting, everlasting gospel to preach. By the way, it's an everlasting gospel to preach uh, to the people. Okay, so the passage, a, a context study of Revelation there showed that that's dodgy at the very best, uh, but it also completely, uh, this whole idea really, uh, goes against Jude chapter, uh, Jude verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. Okay? There's going to be wickedness. These very wicked people that's described in the book of Jude are coming. They're among you. Contend earnestly for the faith. That doesn't sound like you give up. Which was once for all delivered to the saints. It was once for all delivered. It's not going to be an angel come re-deliver it. Galatians 1.8, if an angel does come re-deliver something that's not written here, you reject it. All right, here's some inconsistencies with the Mormon vision of the apostasy. In the, the Book of Mormon, 3rd Nephi, verses 28 through, uh, verses, I'm so sorry, chapter 28, verses 6 and 7. I know your thoughts, okay? This is Jesus while he's in America. <laughs> it sounds funny to say. And he's talking about to go back to heaven, going to be reascending. I know your thoughts. He's talking to a group of people there, Nephi. 
And ye have desired the thing which John, my beloved, who was in me in my ministry before I was lift, that I was lifted up by the Jews, desired of me. I think I missed the B there. Therefore, more, more blessed are ye than, by the way, than some others who earlier requested that they would die in a certain way. Uh, for ye shall never taste of death. They were embarrassed, by the way, to tell him what they wanted, but he knew what they wanted, and, 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 and this is what they wanted to be like John. So they believed John didn't leave the earth. Okay? And, by the way, these three Nephites. So, per the verses above, and the Doctrine of Covenants, section 7, do I not can't do that? Okay, yeah. Uh, okay, no. Well, if you read Doctrine and Covenants, chapter 7, you'd see that the, the Mormons maintain that John and the three Nephites, these three Nephites that are being talked about, never died, and they remained on the earth until this day. Mormons report sightings of them fairly regularly. What have they been doing? And these men that have never tasted death, the three Nephites and the Apostle John, are busy working to bring past righteousness and carry out the purposes of God. All right, do you see the, con- the, the inconsistency there? John and these three Nephites have been on the face of the earth from the, from, from the first century till now. And what have they been doing? They've been spreading the gospel. There is another passage that indicates they would be successful at it. Well, how could the church disappear from the face of the earth if these men are out preaching the gospel and being successful? Doesn't fit. Okay, that's basically what I say there. Another thing, the, the Mormons are very proud of their apostles. They, you know, very consistently maintain uh, that uh, the apostles are, if there is a vacancy, they will fill that vacancy very quickly. They generally have an idea of several that could fill the position, so they don't leave that position uh, uh, vacant for very long. Well, if Mormonism represents the New Testament church, okay, and they they all assert that it does, we've got apostles just like the New Testament church did, and we are doing exactly the fullness of the gospel just like the first testament, first uh, century New Testament church did, and we're putting these apostles in then why did the church disappear right after the death of the apostles? If there was apostolic succession, as the Mormons practiced, there would have always been apostles. So it just don't fly. All right, that's it for tonight. I guess the fact that it's in the plan of God, does that happen? I've never heard one say that, but they would have to say that it, you know, that would have to be revealed somewhere in the scriptures that that was the plan of God in the scriptures as we've shown do not allow for that to have been in part of the plan of God he intended for Jesus Christ intended for his church to be established and for men to preach and to spread the gospel not only then but through subsequent generations and the church would would remain and does uh, because that's what scripture said would happen and we're evidence of that so they have Mm-hmm. They sure do. They really, I mean, I know it sounds spooky, but it's the truth. They, they, well, you, I mean, you know, the Catholics have their epiphanies, and, and they have all these, you know, I mean, they may be a huge crowd gathered someplace, and the sun hits the building in a certain way, and half of them think they saw Mary. You know, and so in this case, it would be, you know, like the angels, men have even entertained angels unaware. Uh, you know, here's a man, you were stranded on a road, he, mysterious stranger comes. He helps you change your tire. I think that was one of the Nephites. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
You know what I'm saying? That sort of thing. How can you disprove that? But it was never, it was never, it was never like that in the office. They, they never did themselves, did they? No. They never, yeah, that's a very good point. If they are, if they are, say again? Right. They were teaching the gospel to whoever would listen. They were going, you know, look at Paul. Was he hidden? No, they all, in fact, they say, very good point. This thing was not done in a corner. Jesus says that. Paul says that. This thing's not hidden. You guys know this. Well, where are the, the Nephites and John? And plus, the scripture makes it clear. He didn't say that John would live forever, but he said, what? If I will that he remain, what is that to you? That ain't, it's the Holy, it's not even the point. Oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna have to wrap my head around that. But you know, that's the thing that they do is they take that little thing, little's known about it, a lot of speculation, and then they, they wrap this whole doctrine up. <laughs> Stuff like that is easy to tell. You can wiggle up until friends that they can say, yeah, that statue is crying blood. Blood, right. And they grab and they run it. Absolutely. The rest is solid. It's not that, right? That's right. For the common man, that's good enough. It, it, it is evidence of God in our lives. And people want that. I mean, when you think about it, that's the Mormons and uh, Pentecostals. You know, that's the appeal is God not only loves me and cares about me, he, he is in my life in a real and tangible way that doesn't require me to have to have faith only. Yeah. And that's appealing to people. You know, it, but it's not, it's not, not, that's not the way the Lord does. Good job. Well, thank you guys for being patient. This is really good. Thank you. We, you're welcome.